Hello and welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. We bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. The innovators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones from the Sense Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. I seek out people with extreme perspectives, people who want to change things and push the human race forward. Together, we collaborate with the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Today, we're speaking with the rebel, entrepreneur, neuroscientist, and author of The Purpose Myth, Charlotte Kramer, in Lisbon. Keep listening as we discuss how the creation of a glow-in-the-dark duvet business was established in the back of a tuk-tuk, business planning with Richard Branson at 35,000 feet, Kraken Cider, a side project that helped homeless people around the world, and most importantly, Charlotte's book, The Purpose Myth, how to survive, strive for a better world, learn, grow, and most importantly, thrive. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Very well. Thanks for joining us today. You're calling us from Lisbon, right? I am indeed. Excellent. So we should just get our conversation going. But like with all of these conversations, I have to start with the first question. Are you an outlier, misfit, rebel, or a crazy one? So (laughs) this is funny. I had to Google what each of them were because I first saw the list and I was like, aren't they all the same thing? So I have this post-it note in front of me with a definition of each. And after thinking about it for quite some time, this kind of shows how I approach things. I'm like, I'm going to take the, um, the data-driven approach. I thought initially that I was a misfit, but I think that rebel is definitely the most aligned because I think that most people would assume that I fit in quite well, but it's only after I've been in an environment for an amount of time and I start to cause a ruckus and disagree with how things are running to people maybe realize that yeah I don't fit in as much as they might have thought. So you conform to deform? Yes. That's how I've often thought about it. Yeah. It's better to get on the inside to change things than throw rocks from the outside. Yeah I think that is the case but I think it also means when you're constantly trying to conform and fit in, then sometimes you aren't necessarily as true to yourself or you find yourself in in environments that aren't as conducive to you becoming your best self because you're to a certain degree just trying to fit in and that takes a lot of energy. So there's so many things that I want to talk to you about today and that's certainly one of them with your latest um, project. But I just thought it would just be helpful if we could sort of set the scene a little bit and just share a share a few highlights of your journey so far that leads Mm. you to the point that you're at today. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, My first highlight I wanted to talk about was back in 2013. I started a business with a friend. We started it in a tuk-tuk in Sri Lanka where he told me that he was terrified of the dark as a kid, that his mum used to have to tuck in his duvet all the way around his feet and promised that monsters weren't gonna come and eat him. And we were talking about how there are so many, so many kids that are afflicted by this fear. And maybe there was a way that we could create a product that would help kids overcome this fear. Long story short, we identified 
using an iPad and a tethered hotspot from a mobile phone in the back of a tuk-tuk, that the reason kids are scared of the dark is because until a certain point, they can't actually tell the difference between reality and their imagination. Which, if you try and imagine right now, is terrifying. Anything that a child, they think below the age of five or seven thinks, they believe is reality. So that monster underneath their bed is real. Like there is a real monster under their bed. And so we wondered how could we use the power of their imagination to help them overcome their fear? Like, could we use that thing that was making them so scared to help them overcome being scared of the dark? And we created this glow in the dark duvet cover and a storybook, which basically had a spell that the kids have to say. And then when the light goes out, the spell glows on their duvet cover and it protects them by magic. So it creates the shield. And that's all to say that we created this product and got funding from Virgin Startup. And then a few months into that funding and mentoring, Richard Branson actually invited me to go to Detroit and I had a mentoring session with him on a flight. So at 38,000 feet, we were sat at the bar having a drink and he was mentoring me on this business. And it was so cool. That was a highlight. What was the name of that business? Glow Away. Glow Away. I like a good pun. That's great. <laughs> I know. My teacher at university hated puns and I feel like most of my best ideas have then incorporated puns Some, someone once said to me that was one of their creative techniques it's like for the first three hours of getting that brief it's just like flush out all the puns um <laughs> try and write them all down so they don't come back and haunt you later on but actually yeah. some, sometimes just some of the best ideas are lurking in there as well yeah. yeah and so what what happened what transpired after the flight and what, where's the business today? It was a rapid degradation after the flight. <laughs> but that was the, that was the peak. <laughs> um, that was a really bright highlight. But um, yeah, we got, so our initial batch all sold out. We sent them to mummy bloggers. They loved them, had this feedback that it was actually helping kids overcome their fear, that parents were having full night's sleeps for the first time in months. And we kind of didn't think that that was going to be possible. It felt like a nice idea and it was based on a kind of pseudoscience insight and it was cute, but we didn't think it would actually work. And it did. And we saw down. It was great. And then we ordered our second batch from our factory in China and spent our entire um, bank balance on this second batch of duvets and they were all faulty. And we had no contract with the <laughs> with the factory. We had no insurance. And it was so naive and stupid because we'd read so many blog posts saying like, these are the things you need to do when you're working with a factory in China. You need to visit, you need to see the stock before it's sent out. And I remember having a conversation with my business partner, Davide, and saying, you know, it's going to be fine. There's no point us spending 500 pounds on a ticket to go to Guangzhou. I'm sure they'll be great. Our initial batch was great. Um, and they weren't. So I think there are still 2,000 faulty duvet covers in my dad's garage somewhere. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but no doubt there's something to be learned from that. So that lesson taught me, I will never have a business again where I have physical stock where I'm buying things up front. So 
the next business was, it wasn't even a business. It was a, a creative side project. My friend Scarlett and I, again, we were in Berlin bemoaning um, our lives, working in advertising, selling things like chocolate bars to women who are on diets. Like, how can we sell chocolate to women who want to lose weight? What a stupid thing to even put in a brief. And just feeling so frustrated at the meaningless of our work. And then we were in Berlin and a homeless guy asked, asked us for some spare change. And just as I had responded in all other similar situations, I kind of looked the other way and we walked off and went to get a coffee. And as we sat down to drink this seven euro coffee or something ridiculous, we realized that we were complaining about not doing anything meaningful with our lives. We were given an opportunity to help someone and then we said no and went on to spend seven times what he was asking for on ourselves. And that really didn't sit well. And we started to have a conversation about, you know, why was that the case? Why had we been given an opportunity to help, left and felt guilty and we're still talking about it for hours after the interaction? And so we wondered if other people felt this way. Did other people want to give to people experiencing homelessness, but not give? And we found that that was absolutely the case. There were so many people who you know, felt guilty for, for not giving to those experiencing homelessness. And there was so much cognitive dissonance there that it felt like an opportunity to resolve. And ultimately we identified that the reason people don't give, and this is incredibly complex, and inherently flawed but it's that they worry it will be spent on the wrong things like you must have seen the posters around London that say don't give to someone on the street they might spend it on drugs or alcohol it could contribute to their early death so after thinking about that we wondered how how could we create the most transparent model of charitable giving that could exist and so we launched Crack and Cider which is a shop where you could buy essential items and we would distribute those to people experiencing homelessness. So you could buy a jacket or a backpack um, and we would distribute them directly to shelters and soup kitchens in your area um, and get them into the hands of people who need them. That's such a great name, Cider Thanks. Crack. You must have taken inspiration from Richard Branson on that one because he called his airline Virgin, which is... <laughs> counterintuitive right why would you want to fly with someone who's doing it for the first time <laughs> why would you want to be giving money off for cider and crack yeah so that certainly makes people lean in and take notice and yeah and brilliant because it brings so many things together right all that sort of behavioral nudging and how mm -hmm. to overcome those barriers to giving that sounds that sounds amazing um yeah so how did that play out did that grow a little bit further yeah, it did. And I mean, it's interesting you bring up the name because it definitely did. I mean, it enabled us to get the success that we got, which I'll talk about in a second, but it also attracted a lot of criticism, rightly so. Um, but ultimately, the name came from a conversation with someone who was experiencing homelessness who said, yeah, you're right. People don't give me money because they think I'm going to spend it on crack and cider. And Everyone we spoke to who was homeless at the time loved the name and totally understood it and recognized that those are stereotypes that people hold. And I fundamentally believe that 
in order to overcome stereotypes of any kind, firstly, we have to acknowledge that they exist. We have to name them and we have to talk about them. And I think this year, we definitely saw that with the racial reckoning movement that stemmed from the US. Like we can't overcome racism unless we all accept that we are brought up in a racist society and therefore we are racist until we are anti-racist. And I think that with the name Crack and Cider, it was so difficult for people, especially people who worked in nonprofit organizations that were trying to help overcome problems around homelessness or help people experiencing homelessness because they held those beliefs and those prejudices and stereotypes and that I think I believe that's why those were the people who reacted so strongly to it and um, so vehemently to it anyway the success of it was like mind-blowing to us we spent 614 pounds on building the website and buying all the product that we needed to um, and I should say here also that based on the disaster of glow aways piling duvets that were faulty we decided that we wouldn't buy we'd buy one of each item up front but never hold any stock so every time someone bought something we would accrue it and make a list of how many things had been purchased then once we got to a certain number that would enable us to give one item to everyone who visited one soup kitchen or shelter then we would buy it in bulk and so actually we had a goal of selling a thousand pounds worth um we ended up in the first week selling five thousand pounds worth in the first six weeks thirty six thousand and then over the first year a hundred thousand dollars worth and after that launching in four cities around the world really the way that we were able to scale it so quickly was because we didn't have to buy any stock up front and we also because we sold that many items we actually ended up buying double what people thought they were buying so we thought let's say a jacket is going to cost 20 pounds but because we were able to bulk buy after the purchases had been made we bought two jackets for every one jacket purchased so we ended up distributing over 50,000 items in that first year. Amazing. Just out of interest, which cities did you go to? So London was really the main one. Um, that's where we launched and that's where we had the most success. And then I moved to San Francisco a few months after the launch, launched there that following winter. Um, and then we launched in New York, uh, as a kind of franchise model. And then that franchise model again launched in Bournemouth in the UK. Wow. And just across those four cities, did you see any um, difference in generosity or expectations of um, sort of what would people would give? Yeah. What would you expect? How much, if you gave to someone on the street, how much would you give them? Like what would be a generous thing to give? I mean, I, I have handed 50 pounds to um, okay. <laughs> that's very generous <laughs> yeah well it it was because i i mean i one of the things i've realized is it can be very dehumanizing being on the street mm. and sometimes God, i actually find it quite difficult talking about this because it, it's kind of um it's quite an emotional thing when you engage in those conversations and uh, 
when I say it's dehumanizing, a lot of the time they just become like ghosts. So I'll actually stop and talk to them like humans. And it's surprising how often, you know, the, the reaction that I get is just to speak to them like they're a normal citizen that you might have a, a conversation with, because sometimes that's, yeah. that's just gone. And, you know, from time to time, I, I, you know, when the situation arises, I'll, I'll stop and I, I can chat for 10, 15 minutes because, I mean, yeah, it's it's sort of it's it's like what you do. You're sort of looking for those needs. You know, it's just that natural sort of empathy and understanding. And I don't want to make it too technical, mm. it's just a human. It's a it's a conversation. But I'll often just, you know, without prying too hard, just to understand what's going on for them that day. And sometimes I'll think, you know the best gift I can give is that time and, you know, just some proper social contact. But mm. other times if I'm having a conversation, I'll go, well, if I can make a difference, I'll do it. And on occasion, if it's a room for a night or, or you know, if this, you know, depending on the story. Now I know when I've been with friends that if they've given, I can see quite obviously that it's not being going to be used for what they say they want to use it for but in some cases in fact I was it was an ex-ballerina it was a chap that I got talking to who'd gone mm -hmm. to the Royal Ballet that I actually um, would often stop and talk to him and, huh. and and you know often stop and talk but then that was the person that I would give give some money to for mm -hmm. um, boarding and, and things like that so um, yeah I think for me so if you were to ask me the question um, London, San Francisco, New York. On having lived in London, New York, I might say New York could be more generous. Could be, although on the surface you could be seen as much less likely to give. I think mm -hmm. there could be more there. If I was ranking, if I was having a guess, and this is based, I don't want to be prejudiced to any particular cities. <laughs> yeah. um, Bournemouth, I think, might have been tricky. Knowing Bournemouth. Um, yeah. you know and knowing the property prices down there and everyone's living in sort of wall compounds mm. um, I guess maybe San Francisco people would give more I don't know what what did you learn from kind of the giving yeah. the, general so, the average donation on the street is about two pounds in the UK um, and it's not dissimilar in the US I actually remember a long time ago reading that the majority of giving to people asking on the street is from tourists in all places. I don't know if that's still true or I can't cite that data source, but I remember reading that a long time ago. And it also makes sense to me because I definitely give more to people experiencing homelessness in cities that aren't where I'm from, weirdly. The average donation that we got in the UK was 28 pounds and then the average in SF was $130 which blew my mind <laughs> we had far fewer customers in SF but incredibly generous yeah that was phenomenal because I am sure that that is much much higher than the amount someone would give to someone on the streets I think there's also a problem in that, right? Like you say, that I remember speaking with a few people who were experiencing homelessness when we started Crack and Cider, and they said to me, the worst thing about being homeless is feeling invisible, is feeling like people walk by you and don't even look at you. That's heartbreaking. And 
I think that one of the problems of the model of crack and cider is it further distances that or it further creates a wedge in that human connection because someone might feel oh I did my job and I gave to this website and I bought someone a jacket so I don't need to talk to them so that was something that we really tried to overcome and so whenever we hosted events we would at the end of the event if it was winter hand out a pair of gloves with a tag that said go and give this to someone and spark a conversation I talk to them mm. um it's difficult though isn't it because you don't want it to feel like a pity party or feel like you know similar to that white saviorism concept this idea of like they maybe they don't want to talk to you I don't know <laughs> maybe I'm expecting that they want me to say hi. Maybe they don't. It's like when a guy wolf whistles at you. I don't like. They might think, "Oh, it's a compliment. She would like that." But that we know that is not the case. And sometimes I wonder whether it's fair for us to make those assumptions. But then also, I don't know. It's, it's not perfect, is it? No. No, but I think I, I, that's, I think you're absolutely spot on with that observation. I think all you can be is, you know, it is actually about being human and it's about mm. being kind. And I think, you, you, you know, and you just have to meet them on an equal level just because, you know, you're, you've maybe had a bit more luck or haven't suffered certain things. You know, you just, you actually never know the circumstances that sit behind a lot of this. And it's so mm. true. That, you know, it could so easily be you. It could be you to win the lottery, but equally... You know, so often events just coincide, and you know, yeah. lives can just spiral, and it, and it's easy to shut yourself off because you know a lot of the time I think we are probably living in that fear of failure, and if you know ignoring it is almost ignoring what you know to be true that that could probably easily um, be mm. if events conspired against you. So you've helped a lot of people. You've given a lot of backpacks away. We gave a lot of backpacks away, yes. (laughs) And so where is that, where's that led you to now? So Scarlett and I, my co-founder of Crack Insider, just found so many immeasurable benefits to our confidence, our belief in ourselves, uh, recognition of what we were capable of um, without the bureaucracies of work kind of holding us back. And also how amazing it is to have access to the tools that we need to actually change people's lives and we all have access to those tools now it's easier than ever to impact a vast portion of the population really quite easily and so off the back of doing crack and cider Scarlett and I did a lot of workshops at universities and talks at conferences on how to start a purpose project like Crack Insider, how to identify a problem or a social issue that really breaks your heart and develop a solution that will be newsworthy, effective and impactful um, and how to take it from idea to a successful launch. And off the back of those workshops, we were often asked, oh, do you have a, a workbook that we can take away or is there a um, is there any more literature on this? And we had to say no, but in the back of my mind always thought, you know, we should probably write this down and turn it into a book of some sort. And so over the last three and a half years, I can't believe it's been that long, I've 
been working on turning that into a book, which started out as more of a how-to guide. It was called Be Bad, Do Good initially, which, yeah, definitely speaks to that rebel <laughs> refusing allegiance. And it's evolved into more of a cultural commentary on work culture and how we are led to believe that we should find our life's purpose in our nine to fives and invariably feel grossly unfulfilled when that promise of purpose fulfillment at work isn't met. And I think that's the experience that the vast portion of our uh, population and generation are facing where 70% of people wanna quit their jobs, jobs because of lack of purpose. Um, and I think it's because of this, this delusion or this lie that paid work has to fulfill our purpose. So that's all to say, I could talk about this a lot. I have just finished and published my first book called The Purpose Myth, and it's about that. Well, that's something that we recognise as too, we may be articulated in a slightly different way, but um, we talk about being more than your job title. Mm. You know, so often we just realize that how you get defined is one of the first, you know, when you meet people, it's one of the first things you kind of get asked and you get pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. And even after, even after 20 years, I'm still struggling to describe what it is that, that I do. Or, you know, maybe I'm purposefully ambiguous about it because I refuse to be defined because I zoom in and out of so many different worlds and meet so many wonderful people. You sort of, I, I always have to have a sort of, you have to understand who people are before you can sometimes say that. But I think, yeah. when, it comes to, I think when it comes um, to jobs, I think you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, recently we've just been working on a project looking at social impact. And it's so, I'm so pleased to see that the purpose-driven businesses outperform the profit-driven businesses. Mm -hmm. in, in business terms, that's, that's been around for, for, for quite a while. And there's some great case studies to support that. Um, but there's just, as you say, there's just, there's more and more need to either have that within the businesses we're working for yeah. or somehow in our, else in our lives, you know, what we're, you know, how we see things. We believe a lot of that comes down to creativity. Uh, you know, that's actually what it all adds up to. However, that might manifest, whether it's a, a hobby or a, a cause mm -hmm. that you're involved in. But I'd love to hear more from, from your perspective. You know, tell us a little bit more about how you're approaching this from an individual perspective. Where, you know, what, if you've got this itch, if you've got this kind of restlessness that you're not mm. fulfilled, where, where do you start? What's the question you should be asking yourself? Yeah, I'm going to backtrack for a second and we'll get back to this. But OK, when you meet someone in a cocktail bar, you know, we don't go to cocktail bars anymore. Um, when you meet someone on Zoom and <laughs> and you're making small talk initially, what is the first thing you ask? Because I hate the question, so what do you do? I hate it. It's so flawed and it reduces the complexity of human life to your job title. And you're frankly asking not what do you do, you're asking someone how do you make income? I mean, what a boring question. <laughs> But I also find myself in social situations where I meet someone and I, I feel stuck in my head, like, okay, I need to come up with a question that's not what do you do, but 
I'm interested, what do they do? But there must be something more interesting to ask. And then I get really caught up in my head and I, I don't know what's an alternative. So do you have an alternative? Well, yeah. I, so the phrase that even as a child struck me, it, even though it's one of those things you hear and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, do you work to live or do you live to work? Mm. And that for me was always my starting point because I do think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very good at just polarizing situations. So are you someone who lives to work or are you someone that works to live? And, it, and it's my similar view on, um, you know, there are people in the world who I divide them into sponges and stones. Are there people who want to continue to learn or are those people that reached a certain point and go, I know enough, this is my life. I don't want anything to come and challenge my worldview. You know, maybe a little bit similar to attitudes when you're walking past homeless people on the street. You don't want any question of doubt thrown on the world that you've created because it's it's fragile, but we don't want to admit it. And so some of those questions, so the, one of the questions that works quite well is I said, you know, what do you do for a living? You know, so rather than saying, you know, what's your job or what, you know, what do you mm. do? kind of what you do for a living is sometimes, you know, the people that would normally react badly to being asked what you do for a job, because you meet a lot of people who don't have jobs. If they're an artist, they don't necessarily define that as a job, you know, yeah. it's something that they, they, they choose to do. So that's, I don't think I've solved it, but that's yeah. one of the things that I do. Or another good test is, you know, you just say something slightly outrageous or slightly, well, I say when I say outrageous, slightly controversial. If you're in, if you're meeting someone for the first time, you know, just offer a different view, um, a challenging view, and see how they react. Because mm. that way, you can kind of you can jump straight into a conversation without skirting around the edges of niceties too too quickly. So yeah. I've got all sorts of coping strategies in those situations, but most of the time I'm interested in getting to the heart of the matter. How do I, you know, how do how do I get through that armor that we all seem to wear mm. um, and get straight to the the sort of the real person. That's what I guess that's what I'm looking for. And I guess that's yeah. why I, I the, the opening question today is, you know, are you a rebel misfit outlier? Because it just allows you to express a, a maybe a you know, something that might be a bit more controversial about you rather than, you know, just thinking that everyone wants to know that you went on this path where, yes, I, I went to school, I never got into trouble, yeah. I, I got a job, I was a great, you know, it's like, no, I didn't do any of that. It's very difficult for me to do that. But, you know, you have to pretend at times because you don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. But anyway, that's a slightly rambling response to your question. But yeah, it's a good one. You know, there's so much expectation on us. Again, it's, you know, just... Like you were saying, it's there's just all these conventions that we're yeah. expected to conform to, um, yeah. but that is changing, right? I think so. And on your earlier question of, you know, what do you think? What have I done, or what should someone do if they're questioning whether they found purpose in work? I think that ultimately, when we talk about work. We, it would be helpful to think of it more as a portfolio. And I think of our work needing to accomplish three core needs. The first is our need to survive. Like we need some sort of work that enables us to put a roof over our heads and food on the table. I think that's essential. Number two is our need to strive for a better world. It's 
the need, the fundamental human need for an outward contribution and to be in the service of other people. And there's an evolutionary adaptive basis for that need. And then thirdly is our need to thrive. We also have a fundamental human need to learn, to grow, to um, for personal development. And I think that if we recognize we have these three needs that we should accomplish through work in some way, we can then ask ourselves, okay, uh, is my day job meeting my need to survive, strive and or thrive? If it's just meeting my need to survive, then I have the opportunity to look at other ways or other types of work that can fulfill the other needs. So maybe that's a purpose project, maybe it's a course in the evening, maybe it's volunteering, maybe it's doing something creative in your free time. But I think putting all of the responsibility of those three core human needs, like we need those to thrive. They are so core to your psychological and physical well-being that you will not you'll not be your best self without accomplishing all three, but to put all three of those on a paid job that ultimately is in the benefit of a corporation is just laughable, like it's absurd. You're not gonna believe me. Only yesterday, and this is the strangest serendipity, I mentioned we were working on this social impact and we were having to write a statement. And the two words that came into that statement yesterday was strive and thrive. There you go. And you can so quote that, me. But I, no, I, I'm, I'm, I know, it's not from me. I'm, abs I'm absolutely going to draw this all together because um, I, it's just, it really does resonate with what you've um, you've just shared because that it's kind of, it's, it's just not good enough. And those are two really powerful words that I think aren't probably focused on their true meaning and enough. Mm. And in fact, a lot of that perspective came from just taking a very diverse view from members of the Sense Network. I mean, and as you know, our, our purpose of the Sense Network is to make things better and to make better things. Mm. You know, that piece around progress and, and betterment is, is so important for us. You know, that's why we engage on stuff. There's got to be a match in value. So um, I just had to share that with you. Yeah, that's awesome. But you've come at this from a you mean it's from a from a neuroscience perspective, is that right? Yeah, slightly. I there are definitely elements of even evolutionary biology and neuroscience and psychology that I have almost post-rationalized why doing something like crack and cider was so impactful to my core being and my career and my identity. Yeah, I, I'm studying neuroscience at the moment. So definitely think about a lot of things through that lens. And then also the, the practical application of neuroscience to things like productivity or avoiding distractions or organizing your day. I think, you know, if we're, if we're gonna have this portfolio approach, approach to our careers, then we have to be more in control of um, how we're organizing our time. So what are the, you know, what are the practical steps that um, someone can take or do, or, you know, what's the sort of, yeah. if we want to survive, strive and thrive, mm. if this is, you said, a bit of helping or this evolved from being bad to be good, um, <laughs> <laughs> how do I go from being bad to be being good? 
Oh no, I think you have to be bad to be good, to do good, because ultimately all of the things in society or in our world that are bad and that harm people are a product of systems and processes that exist in that society for it to function. So something like homelessness is not a mistake, like it's a symptom of this capitalist system that we're in. And I think that in order to do good, we have to break rules. Like there's no way that we can change things or make an impact unless we break rules. And breaking rules means that to someone who made those rules or to someone who benefits from those rules, you're being bad. So I literally think there's no way in the world you could really do good without upsetting someone. Well, I was thinking, if you're thinking about your book and launching that, if there's someone who wants to adopt this and say, mm. yeah, that's, that's me, you know, that's how I'm, that's how I'm feeling because mm. I've, I can, I've seen this as well. I, I'm just thinking when you were talking about, you know, these bits that are missing, there's, um, uh, Clay Shirky wrote about a thing called the cognitive surplus years ago. Now this mm. is slightly different, but you know, if you take a 24 hour day, you know, we've got the eight hours that we sleep, we've got the eight hours that we work, and then we've got this other eight hours that a lot mm -hmm. of people spend binging on Netflix, but there are other people out there who want to spend that eight hours on learning something, doing something that is going to make a difference either to themselves by learning mm. skills or contributing um, in the service of others, like you mentioned. And that's always really intrigued me because it's like there's this third of our day that could just be utilized yeah. much better. And I, you know, and, and, you know, the other thing that we spend a lot of time about thinking about is, you know, to, to kind of make those creative leaps or to make a difference. It, you know, sometimes what I think what you're talking about being bad to be good, it's actually what we're talking about is being creative. It's kind of, it's challenging things. It's, it's, mm. it's breaking models. It's thinking of framing it in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have the conversation to get the rest of the world to see your view and going, why have we always looked at it like that when we should be looking at it like that? And I mm. think like the bad to be good, you have to be that rebel to challenge things and make, make, make a difference. And so that's always, you know, how, you know, one of the questions we're asking ourselves is, you know, what can we do together or what can we do as individuals to sort of be better at being bad in your language? Mm. Um, sort of just starting to think about, you know, if you have just gone, woken up to that fact, or mm -hmm. you said, we're not going to cocktail bars, we're in lockdown, we've had a lot of time for sort of reflection. Yeah. You know, how many, um, how many of us have sat there and kind of gone, right, when am I at my best? Well, I know being locked down has stopped me from my old routine, which I can't do now, which is, you know, the exercise and that that time you had traveling where you could read or listen to the mm. podcast. Some of those things have gone missing. So just how do you start to organize yourself? Or from your perspective, you know, are there any kind of steps that you can go through for sort of organizing your life better to move yeah. towards a more purpose-driven existence? I think if you want to make a change in your life, firstly, it's about being very mindful about how you're feeling in a moment. And the challenge, the biggest challenge here is that, as you say, 
the eight hours of play in between work and sleep are often hours that we spend consuming. Like we're literally consuming food or Netflix or scrolling through Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And if you're consuming, you will not be able to tap into what you need to tap into in order to address what's imp deeply important to you. And so I think even starting by doing an audit of how much time do you spend consuming or creating can be helpful. And just being aware of it and spending more time in that blank space between activities, because like you say, we've lost all of that in between time. It's kind of from one thing immediately to the next because it's literally all in the same room. So I think, yeah, an order of how much time you spend creating or consuming is really helpful. And then I think becoming aware of the things in the world around you that trigger you or make you feel make you feel emotional, whether it's irritable, upset, angry, um, and noticing not just emotions, but also your like physical responses to things. Whether your hands go clammy, whether you start picking your nails, whether you tense your toes. And the more we can just have awareness of those somatic experiences or thoughts or emotions, the more we can start to recognize what might be important to us and what we might want to address. More than that, the more obvious, and I think it might lead us to that, is I love this quote from Glennon Doyle, that every world changes work begins with a broken heart. But I think for us to recognize what breaks our heart, we have to sit with ourselves and be really in touch with what that is because I think so much of our life when we're constantly consuming or busy and doing one thing to the next we're not really in touch with what hurts us and unless we start there we're never going to change anything we have to recognize what uniquely pains us in order to address it like I always think if Scarlett and I had gone from having that interaction with the person experiencing homeless homelessness straight into a nightclub or the music festival we were going to, we would never have had that conversation. We would never have sat with the weight of that interaction and the guilt and had that, yeah, that conversation about it. And we would never have distributed 50,000 products. So yeah, there's something so powerful in those spaces and it also makes me think about the importance of boredom like I remember reading about the importance of boredom for early development and cognitive development in children and it's true for us too and maybe think about how can you make more time to be bored in your life yeah well and we I think this is this is this is this is a build on that um I completely agree that that boredom piece, because it's there's there's very little space to be bored, and I love the way that you've divided it between consuming and creating, and there's an idea that 
that, that swims around with us around why do, why do businesses, they've, they've sort of, uh, so I'm going off on one slightly, but what I really wanted to talk about is this kind of like slack space. You know, it's like downtime. It's, it's like in the past, if you were, you know, we used to have lunch hours where you might go out and have lunch with someone. And over that lunch, you would talk about stuff. Now, yeah, people still work together, but work days become compressed. Yeah. Um, you know, the devices that we have, we, we know all about the social dilemma and, you know, just that um, impact that they've had on our lives and really how they've, they've kind of crept up on us. But whether it's this boredom or this slack space, so that's really where the new ideas come from. It's mm -hmm. when you're in a slightly different mode or your mind wanders or daydreaming or, you know, that small talk that you can kind of get into where you just meander and let mm -hmm. So, you know, and often that is happening in, and I, and I actually made a little note of some of the great places you've had conversations in the back of a tuk-tuk or at a bar at 35,000 feet or a Berlin coffee shop, or, you know, if you mentioned before, you know, and that's what we try to do with scent suppers as mm. well. You know, it's just creating those places where, you know, you're slightly stepping into the unknown. You never know what's going to come out of it you're going to be colliding these different worlds and bringing different people together and actually just trying to create some of this slack time mm -hmm. so whether it's it's boredom you're daydreaming by yourself or you can just come together with other people who you've never met before to have conversations that you least expect to be having yeah by all means you can drive the agenda and talk about yourself all night but wouldn't actually be more interesting to enter other people's worlds and be inspired by them and you know, so a conversation in the back of a tuk-tuk, well, a, a, with a friend talking about how his mother tucked him up at night um, to make him <laughs> safe and, you know, or the bar at 35,000 feet with Mr. Branson or whatever that might be. I think, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of like, it's not about boredom, but it's about creating those spaces where we're not feeling the need to lock ourselves on to Netflix or, mm -hmm. you know, or TikTok or whatever it it might be that some um, yeah. time and doing something that's creative and not all consuming. Mm. And actually one thing that I've tried to be more attentive to recently is the moments where I'm doing something that's intentionally slower paced or introspective like journaling or I'm just sitting with a coffee with my thoughts probably look like a psychopath but just staring out into the abyss and noticing when I reach for my phone because oftentimes that moment is when I'm journaling about something really difficult or when I'm thinking about something that is painful and I'm trying to avoid and I think that if you can become aware of those moments where your subconscious if you want to call it that distracts you from what's about to happen, which is cognitively painful, then that can be such a fast track to, to healing and addressing what's really important to you. So that might be helpful for people. So you've, you've written a book. Mm -hmm. Is there like a course that people can do or are there sort of events and things that you're gonna be doing off the, off the back of that? Cause I'm intrigued now. I'm kind of like, how do I, how do I go and learn more? Yeah, thank you. So we're launching Purpose School eventually. At the moment, it's a weekly email with my favorite purpose project. So for example, last week I shared 
Grandma's Project, which um, is a project that people launched in their spare time that collects recipes from filmmakers' grandparents. It's absolutely beautiful and really well executed. And then alongside a purpose project, I share a neuroscience insight. So whether that's something about um, productivity or last week's was about the neuroscience of romantic love. Um, so yeah, that's, that's purpose school at the moment and it will be turning into an online course around March time. Um, but between now and then we'll be running events and hope to see people there. Amazing. Um, if you were to put a request out to the network or is there any way that you think we could, we could help support this journey apart from promoting it and telling the world about what you're up to? I think just hopefully reading the book, buying the book. Man, it's so scary to ask people to do something for you. That is something I need to work on. Um, yeah, buy the book and tell me what you think about it. And please start a purpose project of your own. If you have an idea that is something you've been thinking about, then get in touch with me and hopefully we can turn it into something that you actually do this year. I think that 2020 was, oh, man, it's been so painful. But if anything, I think it's shown us the power of collective action and also really shone a spotlight on some of the darker places in our society. And so if there are things that have irked you or have troubled you and you want to address and create something around that's truly impactful, then I think this is the year to do it. And I'd love to help people start those purpose projects. So yeah, go on my website at charlottecramer.com. I'm sure Jeremy will share it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'd love to just meet people who are interested in doing good in their spare time. I feel like ultimately everyone has the same purpose. And the reason that we have this sense of a need for purpose is because we're very vulnerable as animals. We, we suck as babies. We can't look after ourselves for like 10 years. Well, maybe not in the world, but, um, and because of our vulnerability, we've developed this sense of purpose or a need for purpose because ultimately it helps us survive because purpose I think the only definition of purpose is to be in service of others to enable the survival or health of other humans and our species. And I think that what we get confused about is that we think that our tactics or strategies to accomplish or to address that feeling of purpose are the purpose themselves, but they're not. They're just a strategy by which you accomplish purpose. So things like campaigning for against the destruction of the Amazon or uh, for plant-based diets or um, child rearing or, you know, looking after elderly grandparents. Those are all simply strategies that accomplish the same thing. They just enable us to survive. So I think we get so caught up in, I have to find my life purpose. No, you don't. We all have the same life purpose to just help people survive. So you get to choose today, tomorrow, like maybe this morning and this afternoon, you have different tactics, but if you're doing something that is in the service of other people, then 
you're doing something that's purposeful. Like, yeah. don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's um, how we've had these aspirations sold to us as mm -hmm. what the expectations are. Yes. And I think one of the things, I mean, it's kind of happening. Now the social dilemma has been put out by Netflix. Mm. which is just the beginning of that awareness. I mean, it's quite remarkable that someone like Netflix decides to put it out. And then sometimes that's just the irony of these things as well. Mm -hmm. let's, let's make a bestseller of um, talking about the very thing that you're all completely suckered on. Yeah. And, um, I think there is, there, I've been, even before COVID was talking about, you know, a looming mental health crisis. Because you know, how many years can we just be bombarded by images to you know to actually wake up one day and, and realize a lot of this stuff we're not being we're being sold is is not actually going to come into fruition, and you know it's one of those smaller steps. And like you say, and I think this is the reason why I mentioned it. Like you're saying, you know, our values are be human, be creative, collaborate, and be hungry, mm. and. I think when we when we start to look underneath that, it's like you're quite right. You don't need to be having massive, lofty ambition to achieve. I mean, it doesn't do any harm to have that kind of that moonshot and that thing you're striving mm -hmm. for. But actually, you know, again, to use the you know, a quote from someone else, that big journey starts with several small steps, right? And it's doing those small things that you can you can start to do every day to make a difference. You don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. A massive difference often those opportunities if you're open to them will come along and you just sort of grab them and embrace them and you know go and start volunteering somewhere because that yeah even just going to volunteer someone might mean that you meet someone who tells you about something else which leads you in a different direction it's just getting on that path and having that intent often it will be um revealed to you but you you then got to be smart enough to recognize it and then invest the time to make it happen so yeah i think i'm I completely agree with you. It's like you don't need to make those grand gestures of I'm stopping this to go and do that. It's just kind of like, no, I think it was Paul Arden. You might have seen his books. He was uh, yeah, <laughs> I was a big fan. One, one of the great things he says is the best opportunity you've got is in your hands right now or something to that effect. Mm. You've got right in front of you. Don't go looking for something else. It's like, how do you make the most of your situation? It's like, what can you do with what you've got? Um, you just start right here and that's where mm -hmm. you start you don't need to yeah. be somewhere else to do it no I agree oh very philosophical for a yeah. morning <laughs> that was an amazing conversation this morning Charlotte thank you so much great yeah thank you so much really enjoyed it that brings us to the end of a great conversation with Charlotte if you want to make a change become more mindful about how you spend your time Ask yourself, are you consuming or creating in your spare time? What makes you emotional? What breaks your heart? These things might make a good starting point for a purpose project. We will be back soon with another mind-expanding and inspirational conversation soon. I can only wish it might be from the back of a tuk-tuk. Thank you for tuning in to Extreme Perspectives from the Sense Network. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If so, please share it with your friends. We'd also love to hear what you think, so leave us a comment. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at The Sense Network. And if you want to get hands-on and collaborate on a project to make things better and make better things for people in the planet, 
join the Sense Network, linked in the description. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to the next time.